So before before everybody gets maybe super overwhelmed with all these voices going on at the same time, let's just uh, introduce ourselves one at a time. And I'll just preface this by saying that this episode is way out of the wheelhouse for any of us. We never do anything like this. Um, it's just a really good opportunity kind of end of year to come together and talk about the things that, uh, you know, we like to do, that we want to do. Um, and to give maybe just a little bit a bit of a different perspective um, on how the show comes together. And um, yeah, we'll jump right into it. So it's going to be super informal. Nobody's going to sound nearly as polished as they normally do. And we're just going to have to enjoy that. Um, and, and part of that is that we are all, uh, I suppose, the core group of the producers of Eyes on Conservation podcast. And in some ways... Um, one way or another, connected to deeply the Wildlands Collective, which is the parents of the Eyes on Conservation podcast. So I suppose the best place to start would be with Mr. Matthew Podolsky, who is not just a the president or co-founder, he's also a member. Uh, Matthew, why don't you just tell you a little bit about yourself and, uh, you know, just whatever, whatever you want, whatever comes to your heart there, big guy. <laughs> Sure. Thanks. Thanks, Greg. Yeah, I guess I'll say that, you know, I I had this uh, idea, what, probably close to five years ago now um, to start recording a podcast um, as, as a part of, uh, you know, what I was doing at the time uh, as a part of, uh, you know, my work with Wild Lens. Um, you know, that that initial goal was really just to kind of I mean, that initial goal was really to like reach out to the folks who were uh, interested in the mission of the organization, the folks who were watching the video content that we were pushing out at that time. Um, At at that point, you know, the organization was focused solely on, you know, documentary video production focused on conservation and wildlife. Um, So the podcast was definitely a, a new direction for the organization at that stage. I mean, the show has evolved and 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 changed quite a bit since then. Um, I'm sure if folks were to go back and listen to you know those uh, those early episodes, it would be probably pretty embarrassing for me. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I I I'm I'm super stoked about the the all you guys. I mean, the team of producers that we have uh, producing episodes at this point is, is really amazing. And it's, it's just been really cool to see how this original idea has, has evolved and, and how, you know, I mean, the three of you primarily, how, how you guys have, uh, you know, brought your perspectives to the show and uh, really shaped the direction that it's, uh, that it's gone in over the last few years. Excellent. And, and you're located where specifically? I'm based in Boise, Idaho. All right, which is, uh, I guess, on the the western side of the United States for people who don't know uh, what the United States looks like. (laughs) Um, I feel like at some point somebody needed to say that to me, so I'll just say it to to whoever's out there. Right, Idaho is is in the northwest. Um, A lot of people, I I, I grew up in in Massachusetts, so I grew up in the northeast. Um, And when I moved out west, a lot of folks uh, confused Idaho with Iowa. Um, and thought that I lived in the Midwest, um, which is not true. Idaho <laughs> is in the Pacific Northwest. Um, uh, Boise is in the southwest corner of the state. Yeah, definitely not in corn country. I get Ohio and Idaho mixed up. 
Oh, yeah. Interesting. So see, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, you know, it's just <laughs> yeah. it's important to say. Also, we've been meaning to talk to you about some of those boring episodes, but maybe we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. <laughs> um, so that voice you just heard that was Serena Simons. Uh, Serena, why don't you go ahead and just introduce yourself to everybody out there listening? Hi. And, um, also, tell us where you are. Joining us from the far, far uh, west coast. The far right? west. Yes. Uh, yes. Hi, I'm Serena Simons. I'm one of the Producers on the show, uh, you might recognize some of the episodes about, uh, let's see, most of them are about intersectional environmentalism. So uh, most of those uh, were, you know, the last one we did was about Friends of the Urban Forest, which is uh, following my friend Zema um, as she's working for this organization that's trying to plant as many trees as possible in San Francisco and green areas. Um, and sort of how that relates to green gentrification and, and all kinds of stuff. But so, um, yeah, that was my most recent episode. I love doing episodes that, yeah, that do focus on some sort of um, angle um, regarding diversity or, um, you know, environmental racism, things like that. And uh, so those are the kinds of episodes and stories that I like to tell. And I met Matt, uh, I think it's been four years, Matt, I think something like that. Um, and you know, started working with these guys and, um, making podcasts and they went, we all went to Sundance this year, which is really cool. And, um, I think we've accomplished a lot this year and, and, you know, those, those guys will downplay all of their success, but Matt and Sean, you know, it was so cool to see them at Sundance and, and receive, those awards for their film that they worked so hard on and, um, you know, to see how far Wild Lens has come is pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. And it is definitely undersold on the regular. So we really all should talk about that. Um, excellent. Excellent. And joining us, definitely not uh, last, definitely not the least, uh, Kristen Tiesch. Uh, well, you're you're going to be last, so... <laughs> Sorry, so I'm definitely last, certainly not least. This penultimate. is how I am with all colloquialisms. Yes. This is what I do. Yes. So, um, so yeah, I'm Kristen. You may recognize my voice from some of the uh, more rebellious episodes where I like to go out and raise hell in the streets of San Francisco, where I'm from, um, and join my fellow environmentalists here uh, in the efforts to raise awareness and to create more activism, you know, get people out of their seats and out there and trying to do something and make change happen. I'm trying to think like how, oh, well, you know, Serena was mentioning the film about the Vaquita that screened at, Sund- at Sundance this year. And that's actually how I met Matt and Sean years ago when you guys were trying to find a an interpreter for your film. And I think I was the one that connected you. And then you guys ended up uh, screening at Sundance. So that's the short short version of the story. And that's how I met them. And then I think, you know, in terms of like starting to work with um, Eyes on Conservation, it was a couple years ago. Um, it was, it was uh, right after the um, occupant of the White House took, uh, <laughs> took his seat. And um, there was huge protests across the country. Um, about um, believing in science. And so, Matt, I think you contacted me to ask me if I would, you know, produce a segment about the science march in San Francisco. 
And so I ran out there with my little audio recorder and a microphone and gathered a bunch of interviews from the people that were marching that day. And that was the beginning of my journey with Eyes on Conservation. And it will not be, you know, that will not be the last uh, <laughs> protest that I that I join and gather voices for uh, for this podcast. I really enjoy putting those together, those stories together. I think what you mean is certainly not the last and, and, and definitely not the, the, the least. Right? <laughs> All right. Yeah. So Greg, who are let you? Me just, let me just help you out here. <laughs> no, but that's that's also an interesting point about it, too. The the, the way that, that politics plays into conservation and the way that intersectionality, as Serena mentioned, plays into conservation and, and all these different things that maybe from an outsider perspective, you don't really think have that sort of impact. So I really hope we have a little bit of a, a chance to touch on that today. Uh, but I think this is going to be an exciting conversation, and I'm really excited that we could all do this together. This is definitely a change of pace. I've been looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. Eyes on Conservation Party in the house. <laughs> yeah. Um, a little bit of housekeeping before we go forward. Um, we do have a Patreon campaign that is out and about. Patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, backslash Wildlands Collective. We have a long way to go to meet our goal, but meeting that goal, and I hope each of us can kind of speak to that a little bit, will allow us to do a lot of different things about how we produce these stories and the type of quality and production uh, level that we can bring to them. Um, does anybody want to piggyback off of that or say anything about it? I think it's a forward slash. It's not a backslash. See, see, there you go. Just correcting me all the time. <laughs> Nobody was going to do a, a, a backslash. They all knew what I meant. I mean, you know, don't want to lead people to the wrong URL. You don't go to the wrong place. If you use if you use the backward slash instead of the forward slash, you're going to get like the bizarro campaign. Exactly. Exactly. Right, like the ups, upside down version of Eyes on Conservation. Don't, yeah, exactly, don't, don't do that. Yeah. Don't do that. You'll end up in the upside down. <laughs> Uh, but no, I, I, I mean, Greg, I, in response to your question, I would say that, that, that yes, I mean, I, I, th I think one of the biggest things that has been changing about the show since we launched it all those years ago is, uh, is that we're, um, we're experimenting more um, with the style of storytelling that, that we implement in these episodes and uh, we're starting to experiment with, you know, uh, more of sort of like a radio documentary style of production, uh, you know, versus, you know, almost all of the, the early episodes uh, were just, you know, pretty much a straightforward interview. Um, and not that there's anything wrong with that. And, and we'll certainly continue to, to produce episodes like that, that are just sort of a straightforward interview with like a really interesting, uh, you know, individual that, you know, works in the conservation field and, you know, one aspect of it or another. Um, but these more complex episodes that, that we've started producing uh, really allow us to sort of dive deeper into these issues and, you know, explore some of the questions that uh, guests bring up in a more comprehensive way. Um, they also allow us to, you know, to, to present a variety of perspectives on a topic so that you're not just hearing one person's perspective in an episode. You might get a variety of different perspectives and understand that, you know, there's no, there, you know, there's often no one solution to a particular issue. Um, it, it also allows us to, you know, 
make these episodes more entertaining, right? Um, to, to add music to them and to add sound effects and, and to really focus on that sound design um, in these episodes. And that creates, you know, a more engaging experience for our listeners. Um, and it also allows us to, to increase, you know, the number of people that um, it allows us to increase, you know, that listener base um, because, it, you know, episodes like that have a broader appeal, I think. Mm-hmm. I think that's sort of the direction Serena, of podcasts. do you want to add on that? Yeah, I, um, I just think that's the direction of podcasts. Podcasts have really just like exploded in the last couple of years. And, uh, you know, it's sort of that thing where, where people are inundated with information. There's so many different podcasts out there. So you're going to gravitate towards the ones that are really engaging and really pull you in and tell a story in a really unique way that feels like, um, you know, you're – um, you know, engaging with it, you, you know, the, the, like we become characters or depending on what the podcast is about. And so, you know, like we have to keep up with that, what, what people are interested in. And then those are the podcasts that I tend to gravitate towards too. Um, you know, so I think, you know, we're, we're <laughs> going with the times, you know, and, um, we're, we're figuring it out. We're just, we're not a bunch of, um, you know, stuffy conservationists. We are cool. Like we are with it. You know? <laughs> um, well, you're cool. I'm a, yourself, I'm a nerd. I'm a nerd. You're cool. <laughs> we're cool. Wildlands is cool. And, you know, we just, we're trying to evolve, at, you know, with the stories we tell and the platforms and the way that we're telling them. And I think that's, you know, I think that's awesome. I love, I love this new way that Wildlands is, um, you know, choosing to go in. And I think people, I think people are responding well to it. Um, just you guys were mentioning, you know, the we're bringing in, you know, more voices into an episode and we're bringing in music and we're bringing in sound effects. And that requires a lot of editing. So there, mm-hmm. it's taking longer to produce these podcast episodes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it we do a lot of work to bring you good quality storytelling. And I just think it's it's worth getting that out there. Um, I mean, also, thankfully, we all have this skill set to be able to do all of the jobs, not only to go out and research the, you know, research the, the subject matter and who we'd like to interview, but then going out and doing the interviews themselves, and then bringing it home, and then, you know, organizing our media project, and then, you know, sometimes having to hand it off to another team member to then also edit it. And uh, we're doing the most the most we can to bring you the best quality storytelling about environmental issues, you know, of today on a shoestring budget. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think, too, part of that is that we're, we're all very passionate about not just the the topic matter and the content that we're discussing, but the ways in which we actually develop that and produce that content. And that really does become extremely time consuming. So every single time that somebody's able to donate any amount of money that helps us to continue this work, it doesn't just help uh, us, us for now, but it creates a sustainable model where we can do this. And I think the fascinating part about that is not just um, the, the work that we're doing and what we can do with those kinds of funds, but it's also interesting that when you consistently look up uh, different conversation, uh, excuse me, conservation podcasts, consistently Eyes on Conservation is up there as one of the uh, must-listen-to podcasts. So 
we're definitely at the the top. I, I don't I don't want to I don't want to you know speak too highly of ourselves. Or, 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 <laughs> I think or anything, I think we but... need to give ourselves a round of a, of applause right now. Let's pat ourselves on the back and give us a, a round of applause. <laughs> All right, and then, and Everybody? then we, okay, right. <laughs> one, two, three. <laughs> Or, or you know what, Greg? Just add the applause sound effect. I'm sure you have one. (laughs) (laughs) A a rowdy, yeah, yeah, raucous applause definitely coming in there right there. And insert now. Okay, there we go. Um, But, but also, it's not even about us trying to compete with other uh, conservation podcasts. I think we're all pretty on board with the idea of really making a concerted effort to work with a lot of other groups. A lot of other podcasts that are doing great work as well because it, the the fight and the task in front of us is so enormous. Um, and I feel like I speak for everybody when I say that. Well, it is enormous. And I, and I would like to piggyback on what you just said, you know, in that a lot of the times when I'm talking to some of these, you know, individuals and, or groups, you know, people who are representing these groups, like we may be one of the only chances that they get at getting press, you know, because largely, you know, these stories about, you know, climate change, about environmental justice, about uh, the extinction crisis, are they really getting covered by mainstream media in America? No, not, not in the way they should be. So, you know, the people that we meet, you know, who are trying to you know, bring into the conversation, you know, they, they love that we're doing this work too. And they appreciate us, you know, for trying to elevate their voices and their stories as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and, and I guess I would uh, maybe top off this conversation by saying that if you're out there listening to this right now, when we say we want to hear from you, that's not hyperbole. We really genuinely want to know what you like about the show or, or how this affects your life or the things that you want to hear. So uh, the best way for you to do that is to record a voice memo on your smartphone or smart device. If you don't have one, I cannot help you with that. But you can send that short audio clip, the, just, just your voice there, to info at wildlensinc.org. And we will go through all of those uh, voicemails and definitely reach out. I think that we're very interested in trying to create as much of a community as possible coming into uh, to 2020. I almost said 1919. How about that? Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, and I, I would I would add there, Greg, that I mean one of one of the things that 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 we do all the time is we take suggestions for shows from from listeners, and I mean I th- I think we're pretty good at at like paying attention. You know, when listeners reach out and. Uh, you know, tell us that that they think we should cover a certain topic, or even they think you know suggest a specific guest. Uh, as long as as long as we agree that it it is an important issue to be covered, um, you know, we'll jump right in and and uh, and get on that. So I mean, we we um, if folks you know think that there is a topic that that absolutely needs to be covered that that uh, you know we haven't thus far, or even if we've covered it, but uh, you know you think it deserves more attention. Definitely let us know. And what was that email again? Yeah, so that email is info at wildlensinc.org. And just to add to that, because we're on such a tight shoestring budget, having people have those submissions and great content and great follow-ups and leads for us, that actually makes our job a lot, a lot easier. And we can focus on telling the stories as opposed to going out and trying to find that content on our own. So creating that community reaching out, just trying to really listen to our audience as much as they are listening to us because we appreciate it. 
so much. But that's the way that we can return that favor. Indeed. All right. So if we're going to move forward a little bit, uh, it sounds like each of us has an interesting story that we'd like to bring to the table now that either has something to do with the the fundraising part of it or a topic idea that we really want to jump into um, that maybe requires a little bit more funding, but different things that we can bring to the table now. So um, who who would like to go first? Who who really wants to be the guinea pig on this on this? Uh, I don't, crazy idea. I don't want to go first on that, but <laughs> I did want to just, I need, <laughs> I, I was wondering if we could do a little segment on what to get an environmentalist for Christmas, like gift ideas, because I'm having a really That's hard brilliant. time shopping for people in my life. And, and also like, what do I want? What would I want? And I'm having a really hard time. So I want you guys to throw me your best what would you want for Christmas as an environmentalist? I'm going to give you guys a few a few um, environmental Christmas gift ideas. <laughs> okay. Okay. Low impact Christmas gift ideas. Ooh. All right. Let's hear it. Let's hear it. Yeah. First, you can you can plant trees for your loved one, <laughs> your mother, your father your brother, your sister, you can, you know, go and plant some trees. I mean, especially even right here in California, there's places, you know, where we've, we're losing so many trees in our, in our state and, um, we desperately need more trees. And Serena just did a great episode about, um, an organization planting trees in, uh, San Francisco, where I live, and I'm a volunteer of Friends of the <laughs> Urban Forest. So I might actually go plant that tree that you donate. <laughs> so so that's you can go over to Friends of the Urban Forest and you can plant a tree. Um, some other really great gift, gift ideas um, are uh, used books. You don't have to buy anything new. Everything that's out there is already out there and you can find it you know, used and you're therefore not, um, you're not creating, you're not manufacturing anything new, more stuff. You're not creating more stuff. And, um, another idea is just to spend time with your loved ones. And that's free. And that's free. Yeah. I think, I think that's a good one. And you can get away with it if you use a coupon book. A coupon you know, book. like, yeah. 30 minutes of, of, of nice coffee chatting with Greg. Yeah. <laughs> Redeemable minutes. at a time of your choosing, as long as it's not too inconvenient. You know what? You as can a, totally... As an addendum to your idea, though, Kristen, I would also say, if you, if you can't plant a tree, just avoid chopping one down as your, you know, centerpiece of your living room. Yes. Use a potted plant. <laughs> we've used potted we've used potted pine trees the last few years and it's been awesome yeah um you know what my mom and i did last year this is going back to the you know this is combining planting trees and having a potted plant all and serena's latest episode all in one so my mom and i bought a christmas tree from friends of the urban forest and we basically rented it so we made so so we took a tree home that's in a pot and we decorated it and I think it was a Tristania it was not a pine tree in any way it was a Tristania and then we decorated it my mom called I think she called the tree Emma I think that was the name that she chose for the tree so we we cared for Emma for that's a adorable. month over the Christmas season 
And then, you know, Friends of the Urban Forest sent us a little email and said, it's time to bring your tree back. So then <laughs> I went and picked the tree up from my mom's house and I brought it back to Friends of the Urban Forest. And then they planted it somewhere in San Francisco. But we That's gave awesome. that tree some love, you know, for a month. You know, what we fostered it. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty great. That's a really, really great That's story. That's such a wholesome did, did Christmas you, story. It is. Did you have to leave like a shrubbery as a deposit or anything? No, no. You donate. You donate to Friends of the Urban Forest. I think it was. All right. It was a it was a nice, generous donation to the organization that do, that brings so much beauty to our streets. I also wanted to Very mention cool. one other excellent Christmas gift is donating, making a pledge to the Eyes on Conservation podcast and nice you know <laughs> exactly and you know you can you can give the gift it's a you know you subscribe you donate like anywhere from like a dollar to however much you want to donate per month um and and Greg, you know, could spend a half an hour with, <laughs> talking with you about some amazing, you know, subject on environmentalism that you had never thought about before. Um, and that will be, you know, a, a podcast episode that you can download for a simple monthly donation um, on our Patreon page. And the URL is... Oh, you better take it from here because I'm sure I'll just mess it up. I also do uh, baseball talk and foot massages, neither of which probably sound that interesting. I'm not sure if you can get a foot massage over over a podcast episode, but I don't know. VR is getting pretty, you know, pretty advanced. Yeah, I'm not here to figure out the details. I just, you know. So the so the URL is what is it? Patreon.com slash forward slash forward slash wildlands collective collective. Yep. Patreon.com slash Wildlands Collective. Those are really Matthew, good ideas. You, those are really good ideas. They're they're stellar ideas. Matt, did you have an idea? Not one that's nearly as good as the suggestions have already come out. I, I my go to is always um, is often like experience based uh, gifts, right? Mm. So, and and in our family, we 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 at least encourage uh, family members um, to to gift. To, to do homemade gifts. Um, and so one of the things I do every year is I, um, I, I love canning and, and preserving food. So I, I always grow a big garden. Um, and I, I try to, you know, I can a bunch of tomato sauce and a bunch of salsa. So everybody always gets a whole bunch of canned goods, some jam, some tomato sauce, some homemade salsa. Um, uh, but, but then I, I think, you know, along the lines of what you guys were saying, like experience, experience-based gifts are super awesome. You know, like what is it that your your family members or your loved ones really enjoy doing? What would they enjoy doing with you? Um, something you could teach them maybe. Um, and whatever that is, you know, create like a, 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 you know, like a nice note or even, you know, add some sort of, you know, artistic element to it like that explains, you know, what that experience is that that you're gifting to them. That's nice. Wow. That definitely beats my December 24th uh, scramble to any open store. So don't do what Gregory does. I just thought of something else, too. Um, you know, what? I, so I um, I had a milestone in my life this year, and I graduated from uh, City College of San Francisco with my uh, sustainability certificate. Congrats. 
Congratulations. And I told I told everybody that I didn't want any gifts, no gifts. And um and so people always still feel compelled to do something. Um so my brother and his wife uh bought me a membership to the Coral Reef Alliance. And so I think this is because, you know, something that we used to enjoy doing is like snorkeling and scuba diving and um, you know, just witnessing the beauty of life underwater. And so they, they did some research, um, about, you know, environmental organizations that they thought, you know, they wanted to support or wanted to introduce me to. So now I'm a member of the Coral Reef Alliance. This is another, you know, another idea. That's an awesome idea. Yeah. That's rad. And make sure you, you get environmental focus gifts for kids because, you know, we want to like invigorate this next generation of young stewards so uh there are there are some cool you know i got uh this little attachment for an iphone it's like a micro lens macro lens so you can like look at ladybugs up close and you know get them excited about that kind of stuff you know there's all kinds of boxes you can get with experiments um looking under a microscope you know i really enjoyed that when i was young um so yeah make sure Make sure we also get some cool nerd gifts for the for the kids yeah, out there. Yeah, well, piggybacking on the importance of intersectionality, just because it is a science kit or some sort of exploration kit does not mean that a girl cannot have Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Just get it for them. Absolutely. Yes. Buy your son a Barbie. Okay. Um, <laughs> so that's my that's my time. That's my yeah. And yeah. I think there's like an explorer bar- Barbie out there now. Jane Goodall Barbie. That'd be cool. Biologist Barbie. So <laughs> it's baby steps. Yeah. So each of us has brought to the table an article that we would like to share with the rest of the group. Do we have any brave volunteers? Um, mine was just sort of uh, <laughs> funny. The title was, uh, it's this from sciencealert.com. And I shared this on my Facebook page. I only share crap like this on my Facebook now. Um, but the title of this article is NASA scientists shows dinosaurs roamed earth on the other side of the Milky way. And I just thought that was so cool to think about. Like, you know, we, we think about, you know, time and once it gets huge, we, it just, it's, it's really hard to get perspective. But if you think about how insane and how long ago that would have been for us to be on the other side of the Milky way, not us, but dinosaurs, <laughs> um, you know, that, that's just crazy. And I thought that was really fun. Extraterrestrial beings. Yeah. That is really fun. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, so that's, so that, I mean, is that because like earth was on the other side of the galaxy because yeah. like, we're rotating around? Yes, and, okay, exactly. So like that much time has passed to where we're now on the other, complete other side of the Milky Way. We've rotated around our black hole that far which is insane i'm gonna have to look at your facebook page yeah it's a the plethora of of strange information like that (laughs) that's so cool we'll have to to share that one on on (laughs) eyes on conservation page as well so folks can check that out yeah useful cocktail hour yeah it's good right i mean i think that's like one of the things that that i think is really important that that i think we try to do on the show is, you know, take a step back, right? It's really easy to like get into the weeds in a lot of these issues. And I think it's really important to like consciously 
take a step back, look at the bigger picture. And that's like a perfect example of that. You just got really meta about dinosaurs. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I we talk a lot about dinosaurs in my house because I'm a six year old. <laughs> and uh, I it's a daily thing. Yeah. And so I have this um, this long running. I mean, I'm talking years. This campaign has been going on uh, with my son um, trying like because, you know, when he was when he was younger, he was like so obsessed with dinosaurs. And, um, you know, a lot of paleontologists have sort of shifted like the way that they talk about, you know, the quote unquote extinction event for dinosaurs because birds are dinosaurs. Right. So like 100 percent. Yeah. And and so, you know, if if you read like, you know, recent more recently published like paleontological research, um, they don't reference that event in the same way. You know, it, 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 you know, they'll, they'll use language like, you know, non-avian dinosaurs went extinct. Um, but dinosaurs are still with us. They're just birds, right? And so I'm, I'm really trying to get my, my son excited about birds, right? Um, because, because I think birds are super cool. And, you know, my strategy to do that is to, like, convince him that, that birds actually are dinosaurs. Can we but get I'm, that I'm, shirt? Dinosaurs are still with us. They're just birds. Yeah, I know. We, yeah. we need that, right? Yeah. That might be the title of this episode. <laughs> yeah. And pelicans look so dinos- like so much like a dinosaur. They're like these prehistoric creatures. You know? Have you looked at a pelican? It just looks like a dinosaur. It's like a little tiny dinosaur. So That's, I have a question. Yeah. Jurassic Park, right? You know, he's making fun of the raptor. And then he explains how, you know, that the... the Raptors probably, you know, or, or some animals, at least in terms, just evolved into into birds. Was this novel idea in 1993 or was this just like cutting edge? It was this, what was this? No, because all of those dinosaurs were not around in the Jurassic period. Do you remember that scene where he's talking to that punk kid? Yeah, He's making fun of him yes. on the site. <laughs> and then he's trying to tell him that birds evolved <laughs> from dinosaurs. Was that the hard this part kid, like, the, it just the amber? It's it's Neil. What's his name? Yeah, uh, he wants to punch that kid right in the <laughs> yeah. face. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. All right, I do. I do. Okay. Yeah. All um, right. Yeah. I mean, there's lots. Of, there's there's all kinds of inaccuracies in in Jurassic Park. You know. Um, oh, don't don't do this to me now. But yeah. but no, I like I think the most <laughs> important one deep. is like so. Velociraptors were feathered. Yes, right? and smaller. Um, yeah, they were smaller. I mean, a Velociraptor was like, uh, you know closer to a the size of a chicken you know yeah pelicans and and they had um and and they had like a half half a wing um and like t-rex had feathers like we now mm-hmm. know that t-rex was feathered no and way t-rex not have lips or did it have something something like that like they have I tiny think- hands they <laughs> <laughs> So I feel like Chris and I are maybe on the same page, or am I just completely out in the field? <laughs> apparently, no, but, apparently, I need to read a book. But this is good because you know, if we're teaching our kids about evolution, and that includes you know dinosaurs, you, you know, and then with everything going on today, when we have you know the suppression of science in schools, like I'm just trying to bring this all home right now. Um, we, you know, we need to teach about dinosaurs in school. Just that's the end of that tangent dinosaurs are important and evolution is important and everything that comes with evolution and why we should care about the planet is important and that involves dinosaurs in the end 
I love it. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where are we at? Um, <laughs> well, yeah, from we should go from dinosaurs to whales. That's a natural. Yeah, uh, <laughs> well, natural you know, whales. There. Some whales live. <laughs> you know, have very long lives. Um, and as you know, as some of you know, I'm a little bit of a whale nerd. I love love me my cetaceans. Um, so yeah, I we were talking about this episode, and we were talking about you know just how hard it is to raise money for conservation issues. And um, immediately my brain went to this article that I had read recently about an economist from the International Monetary Fund who uh, finally decided, who who I think he like went out on um, a whale watching trip and it was something like that. And then then started thinking about well how much how much carbon does a whale sequester and can we put a price on it you know because this is what economists start thinking about and um the the um the results that he came up with is that you know that whales basically they accumulate carbon in their bodies and then when they die they sink to the bottom of the ocean and so he estimated that whales sequester 33 tons of carbon dioxide, taking that out of the atmosphere. And then a tree, whereas a tree, you know, only absorbs 48 pounds of, of carbon dioxide a year. So he's thinking like, well, wait a minute, this is this like solution to sequestering carbon, um, you know, that's like free because it's, it's like, we just have to support whales you know, and they're and keeping them alive instead of killing them or whatever. And so he estimated that each whale is worth two million dollars, and all of the whales on Earth are worth like a tr- one trillion dollars. You know, and so this is this is how economists think. And so then that made me starting that made me think about um, Dr. Sean Johnson from the. Marine Mammal, the Marine Mammal Center that I interviewed, and he was talking about, you know, how important these necropsies are that, you know, that they have to do on all of the the marine mammals and the whales that, that have been dying as a result of climate change um, and washing up on the shores. And um, so I have a clip from his interview I'm Dr. Sean Johnson. I'm the head veterinarian here at the Marine Mammal Center, and I direct the veterinary science program here, and that includes everything that we do with the animals, from taking the phone calls, rescuing them off the beaches, bringing them here for treatment, or, as in the case with whales, often the dead whales, we send teams out to do necropsies and try to understand why they died and why they wished off on our beaches. The Marine Mammal Center is an, an amazing facility. We've been here in Sausalito for 44 years, and our, our primary rescue range is here in Central California, 600 miles of coastline. So any marine mammal that's in need of help, we respond. And if we can, we bring the animals here to our facility in Sausalito and provide medical care with the ultimate goal of releasing that back, the animal back out in the wild. But during that process, we're collecting all kinds of data that can be used for marine mammal policies. It can understand the diseases. Marine mammals are really the sentinels of the sea, so they also give us a window into the health of the ocean that they live in. 
The gray whale migration into the, gray, the species is an incredible story because most of their feeding is happening up in the Arctic, in the Bering and Chukchi Sea, and so far north Alaska. And they go up there every summertime, and as the ice is melting, there's just a huge amount of productivity. That's why so many animals go to the Arctic for the summertime, because there's so much food. There, there's 24-hour sunlight. There's so much krill and algae in the ocean, and that, that just cascades to an incredible amount of food for everyone. With the sea ice melting really rapidly and the ocean temperatures changing very quickly, that food web in the Arctic has been disrupted and it's changing very, very rapidly because the sea ice, it's receding really quickly and eventually they're predicting there, there won't be any ice in the Arctic on the North Pole all summer long and not too distant future. These rapid changes are just completely changing the way that these animals are behaving and they're unable to find the food. And so whenever these top predators or consumers, like the whales are, are having a hard time thriving, finding enough food, they're an indicator to us that there's a problem. And with the gray whales, we're seeing that these whales are, are malnourished, they're skinny, they didn't get enough food last summer when they were in Alaska, and they're basically starving to death. And for us, that is an alarm that, hey, what's happening that this species is not thriving. This is a story about climate change and the ice melting in the Arctic and the huge changes that are happening in the ocean. And it's indicating that the, the ocean is sick right now and these species, the marine mammals, are having, some of them are having a hard time dealing with those rapid changes. When we get a call about a whale that's stranded itself, we mobilize our uh, necropsy pathology team to go out and really our ultimate goal is to try to determine what caused the stranding, what caused the animal to die. And that requires us to do a full necropsy or autopsy. And that is cutting into the animal, removing the, the skin and the blubber, and getting into the organs, looking at the bones. These animals, a lot of them look malnourished on the outside. Their skin is in very poor condition, which is typical of animals that are starving. But as we dive deeper into them, we find broken bones, we find hemorrhages from potentially forced trauma from being hit by a ship, or, or we look in their stomach to see have they been eating, have, what have they been eating, are there any infections or parasites or anything else that could cause this animal to have stranded. So it's really an investigation. A lot of times we're thinking about the individual animal, the live animal, and getting them back out in the ocean. But really where we can make the greatest impact is collecting the information and the data about the individuals. And, and that means that we, we have experts on site, we have a pathologist, we, go, we spend the extra time and resources to get out into the field. Some of these are very difficult places to get to, to do the necropsies collect the tissue samples that the researchers are going to examine. All of that is such important work. The science and the research is, is critical to finding the answers to the, and, and the solutions to these problems. It's difficult working at a facility like ours where we, we see pain and suffering all day long. And uh, it isn't just the whales, but it's a lot of the marine mammals right now in the ocean. And where I find hope is, is that people care. People are starting to hear the messages. You know, these animals are showing us concrete evidence that, that there are problems with our ocean and our planet. And eventually the people will want to protect these animals and, and prevent the suffering that's happening with all of the marine mammal species. And, and really, we, we can't survive without a healthy ocean. I think all of us as a community need to, to understand how the increase ocean temperatures and the earth's temperatures in general is having a, this broad impact throughout the whole world. You know, we have to think of the ocean as 
as essential to life on Earth. And if, if the ocean starts to die, it's going to impact all of us. And I think it's a call for all of us to think bigger picture on making changes to prevent and slow down the climate change that is happening. Well, it's just it's just that necropsies cost so much money, right? And you know, and then of course the Marine Mammal Center, you know, is a volunteer-run organization. I mean, even Sean, I believe Sean Bogle, who's one of the founders of of, of Wildlands Collective, um, he used to volunteer at the Marine Mammal Center, and you know, this is a volunteer organization. They have a staff, you know, but they, you know, they, you can join for Christmas. You can join the Marine Mammal Center as a member for $25, you know, and, and that would be like a small, you know, you know, small price to pay for, for what, you know, they're doing to save the whales and the, and what whales give us, you know, as, as humans living, living and sharing this planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, it's almost like if you don't like whales, I mean, you're weird, but fine. But if you like carbon being sequestered, you know, that's like a bonus. Like everyone wins for $25. I'm a big fan of carbon sequestration. Let's do this. <laughs> Save the whales. Uh, Matt, I cut you off. My apologies. No, it's all good. It's all good. And and I mean, I think that it's it, 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 there, there's, there's so many examples of, of that, right? Where you have this like massive uh, discrepancy uh, between like sort of a, a a, a more true sort of valuation, right? And and I mean, I, I, obviously, it's like in, in a certain context, it's impossible to like put a monetary value on a creature, an unbelievable creature like a whale. But if you're an economist, you know you can create this formula and you can you can calculate that calculate that you know from a certain perspective, as far as you know that's the the value of these whales from the perspective of carbon sequester carbon sequestration and you know protecting our you know the climate of our planet um and yet right like these whales like are worth two million dollars just for the carbon sequestration services that they provide and yet an organization like the marine mammal uh center like struggles to find the funding just to do like basic research trying to figure out why whale populations are declining you know like that's that's insane um and so the example that I uh, came across sort of along those lines um, of sort of these discrepancies in funding that, you know, result in, uh, you know, like big picture negative effects on the environment um, is related to uh, wildfire. Um, so I uh, had this opportunity uh, earlier in the year to uh, attend this uh, conference um, down in Elko, Nevada. Um, and <clears throat> this conference was was hosted by uh, sort of this uh, this this organization called the Intermountain West Joint Venture, which is kind of a, a collaboration between uh, government agencies and uh, private uh, conservation organizations. Um, and and they hosted this conference, um, which was primarily focused on the issue issues surrounding uh, shrubland wildfire. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people, when they think of wildfire, you know, most people, when they think of wildfire, they're thinking of uh, forest fire, right? Um, fires that happen in forested areas. 
Um, and one of the things that this this group of scientists uh, and uh, sort of agency administrators that came together to host this conference, one of the the sort of main thing that the main sort of uh, piece of information that they were trying to convey to the folks who were attending is that we've reached this point where uh, in the United States, we actually have more shrubland fire than forest fire. Um, so like, there are more acres of shrubland habitat burning in wildfires um, on average each year in the U.S. than there are acres of forested habitat burning. Mm. Um, and yeah. despite that, there is this enormous discrepancy in the amount of funding that is allocated to, uh, you know, to forest fire management versus shrubland fire management. So forest fires, you know, get orders of magnitude, you know, more funding from the U.S. government than shrubland fire management does. Um, and there are some really serious consequences uh, that, that come from that. You know, the narrative by the Forest Service is we need to restore fire, and we, we don't want to restore fire to these um, sagebrush rangelands that are invaded by cheatgrass. That's not, that's not a part, we, that's not what we want to do. Um, we're spending more and more of our resources suppressing fires over the same landscapes over and over. We don't want any more fire in there. That's the voice of Jolie Pollitt, the Bureau of Land Management Division Chief for Fire Planning and Fuels Management. We're actually burning nationally now more acres in rangeland than we are in forests. Uh, on these sagebrush dominated rangelands, uh, in the past less, less than 20 years, we've lost over 15 million acres. And in just the last five years, almost 10 million acres of sage-grouse habitats burned. And for, for a long time, forest fires did burn more in terms of acres burned, but that's changed. Now rangeland fires are really burning more acres nationally. I don't know how many times I edit documents and I edit out forest fire and I put in wildfire. I do that every week. This national level bias towards forest fire over rangeland or shrubland fire goes well beyond word choice. Um, in preparedness, BLM gets, this is like the resources, the fire engines that we have available, the, the crews that we have, uh, staffing dispatch centers, you know, that are fire detection, the, those kinds of resources. We have 180 million dollars allocated to this nationally from Congress. Forest Service has over a billion. That's more than five times the funding allocated to forest fire preparedness versus shrubland or rangeland fire preparedness. And that doesn't even include funding for post-fire restoration. Post-fire recovery, BLM's allocation that is $11 million annually. That's nothing. $11 million to deal with 2.1 million acres that burns, that's that five-year average, we're, we're, that's not gonna cut it. I really do feel like we are looking at a permanent loss of ecosystems unless we start dealing with this pretty seriously. Uh, we already have experienced that. The cost of restoring uh, some of these areas um, is is kind of too high. And so we have to we have to focus resources and we have to get a little bit more attention on these issues. Yeah, it's it's it, you know basically like the you know the issue with with shrubland fires sort of in a nutshell um, is that. You know, here where I live in, in the Intermountain West, um, you know, is is dominated by this sort of ecosystem type called the 
um, the sagebrush steppe. Um, so it's, you know, the dominant sort of plant species is uh, this shrub called sagebrush. Um, and all of the animals and other plants and, you know, microorganisms, like the whole ecosystem is, is dependent on um, sagebrush. And, but the problem is, is that, you know, this is, you know, most sagebrush ecosystems, you know, some of them are fire adapted, some of them maybe not. Uh, but even the sagebrush ecosystems that are fire adapted have really, really long fire return intervals. I mean, we're talking like hundreds and hundreds of years um, in a natural setting um, is the frequency, you know, on average when these habitats would burn naturally. Um, but because we have, uh, this, you know, these sort of factors coming together right now, the two main ones being invasive species. So we have uh, invasive annual grass species with uh, this grass called cheatgrass being uh, the most important one. Um, and then you have climate change, right? So climate change is creating, it's warming these ecosystems and it's creating an environment that is more conducive to the spread of these uh, annual invasive grasses like cheatgrass. And what happens is, you know, this cheatgrass comes in and it creates a situation that is more conducive to fire because it it puts on all this growth in like late winter and early spring and then it dies. So it creates fuel for fires. Um, and when mm. uh, when an area of this sagebrush ecosystem burns, it's very, very difficult to restore it. Um, and, un you know, unfortunately, the cheatgrass you know, like cheatgrass is adapted to take over uh, in disturbed habitats. Um, so when an area of the sagebrush uh, steppe ecosystem burns, the cheatgrass just immediately takes over. Um, and without like really intensive uh, sort of management from humans, um, the area, you know, a sagebrush area can burn once and then it'll be, you know, almost immediately converted to, uh, you know, basically like a cheatgrass monoculture. And when you have cheatgrass monoculture, an area, you know, an area that's now dominated by, you know, these uh, annual invasive grass species, it'll burn every few years, you know. So you've taken an ecosystem that has a fire return interval of like 500 years. And within a very, very short window of time, you've shifted that fire return interval to say like three years or four years or five years. Right. So it completely transforms the landscape. Um, and in the area where I live, um, an enormous amount of this sagebrush steppe uh, habitat has already been converted um, to uh, annual, uh, you know, annual invasive grassland. Um, and the problem is that the cost to restore these ecosystems to uh, a sagebrush dominant landscape um, to try to bring it back is is enormous right um to the extent that like it 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 costs so much that it it actually has has hasn't even been attempted on the uh, like on a large enough scale to actually bring back this ecosystem oh god um and so you know i uh, one of the interviews that 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 i did um with with this woman who was who was at this conference um i mean she's concerned that that we're going to lose this ecosystem type, right? That the sagebrush step is just going to, is going to disappear, you know, because this is getting worse with climate change, not better. 
And, you know, the federal government is it's clearly not a priority funding wise for the federal government. Right. And there's a chance that if, you know, uh, there was an investment into uh, sort of doing research on trying to scale restoration efforts and, you know, figure out a way to do really large scale restoration, like maybe we could, you know, that's an open question. Um, but it's a question that we haven't even begun to answer because we haven't put forward the funding that is required to even try to do it. Yeah. I mean, that's the story of we're, we're dealing with the same thing at my job and uh, yeah, gr grassland habitat and that fringe habitat is so it's, it's really, really, yeah. Like Matt was saying, it's really, really hard to restore. And, and one thing that I learned when I started working, um, on fire and like got my fire cert and all of that, um, is like the indigenous communities, especially in California, when, when, you know, colonizers came over here, they didn't see like this crazy wild habit. Like it was managed. It was very, very well managed by fire, um, by these communities. And so I think when we think of like, you know, oh, wilderness and wild spaces, and we want to preserve that. It also means that we have to take care of it. We can't just, you know, let these species, you know, go as they will, because climate change is making those conditions, you know, all the things that Matt just said, it makes these invasive species thrive in these changing climates. So, um, like, we have to manage that, and we have to support the people that manage, you know, our land, um, you know, and that's another way that you could, you know, get a Christmas gift for someone, give them a park to national and state parks or, you know, donate to some of the foundations there. But, um, and also just cheer cheerleading for organizations that are putting in that really hard work because it is really, really hard work. Yeah. that's, I mean, that, and you make a really important point there, Serena, that I didn't touch on, which is that, you know, it's really important to remind folks if they don't know already that, you know, wilderness is a construct, right? Um, I mean, here in North America, like we're living on landscapes that have been actively managed for many thousands of years. Um, and when the first European Americans arrived in these areas, they were they were observing managed ecosystems. Right. Um, and I mean, it, it you know, maybe they appeared to be wild, but like that was there was active management going on that had been going on for thousands of years. Um, so it's not like we can just, we can't just walk away, right? We can't just say like, oh, this area is protected. So humans, we can take a step back and right. let things return to the natural, you know, uh, sort of, you know, a natural landscape. Um, oh, way past that. Yeah, we're, we're so far past that. Um, you know, we need really active management. Um, and it has to be, you know, science based, but it also has to, you know, I mean, it, it, it should absolutely be drawing on, you know, the lessons that Native American people have learned from actively managing these landscapes for thousands of years. Definitely. Isn't there, I mean, there's a statistic, and this is something that I think that Serena and I talked about uh, several times, that it's 80% of the forests are on 5% of... Yeah, oh, I think, I mean, the impact, so like indigenous communities contribute the least to climate change but are you know the most vulnerable to its impacts yeah That's they can yeah they contribute the least mm -hmm. and are most impacted 
uh, by climate change. And also the, the protected forests, I think they, I think 85% or something of protected forests, and I'll have to look up the number and I can record a soundbite that you can insert, but it's something like 85% of, of protected forests are on indigenous land. Mm-hmm. And so by supporting indigenous people, you know, and their land rights and their land management practices, we are saving <laughs> what we have. Yeah. And, and also seeing other ecosystems as valuable. I think what Matt sort of touched on was, you know, this is shrubland. Nobody really cares about shrubland, <laughs> even though it's so vital in desert habitat as well. Like we, we, we don't, give it as much value i guess when we see it's a hard sell it is a really hard sell and and prairie grasses prairie grasses are Mm -hmm. another like hard sell but those roots go down deep and they they also sequester a lot of carbon yes and they're super important Mm. i'm in colorado and the eastern half of us is completely plains and nobody talks about that nobody great i tell people never to go there you should talk about it don't I tell people don't go. I say that all the time. So if you're in Colorado, don't go to the east side. I'm sorry. Matt, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I've got a story for you. Um, I guess I've always kind of been preoccupied and interested with waste and how do we do anything about it. And there's a lot of different things happening in the last couple of years that affects how we handle our waste. Um, I want to play a clip for you. It's really short. It's from Portlandia, of all places. So highly journalistic integrity. Five years ago, we went green. This year, we're going greener. Now there's a bin for everything. For For cardboard cardboard and and newspaper. newspaper. The blue bin. Plastic and aluminum. Glass. Yard waste. Yeller. Is that how you say it? Yeller. Oh. What do you say? Yellow. Coffee cups, cups, sleeves, orange, stir stick, brown, cups, periwinkle, lid, fuchsia. Oh, wait. It has lipstick on it, see? Oh. Lipstick lids, rose. We did it. Broken umbrellas. And broken hearts. Canary. Hey, why'd you get these from my room? I have a sign up front that says boys only. You're holding on to a lot of things. (gasps) Yay, I found it. Lotions, chartreuse. Right then. Lotion bottle, green. Fingernails. And eggshells, cobalt. So this whole thing goes on for a little while. But the whole idea behind it is, you know, how ridiculously difficult it is to recycle. And I feel like nobody knows what the hell they're doing anymore. And so you can hold that same, we've talked about this, but you can hold that same piece of plastic or or uh, paper or whatever it is in front of 12 different people and get 12 different answers about where it needs to go or how to dispose of it. And that makes me crazy. So uh, the article that I looked at for today was actually from The Atlantic. And admittedly, it's from March of 2019. But it says the the... the Article is titled, Is This the End of Recycling? China, primarily of most places, has stopped taking our recycling at all. Um, And that includes not just plastic, but paper and glass. 
And so the cost of recycling has gone up so astronomically in some of these small towns across the United States that they just don't do it anymore. Anywhere from six bucks to a ton to 125 or more a ton for recycling. And so we're kind of in this era where we're really on the cusp of watching recycling become a pastime. And there's this whole this whole overhaul that needs to happen among recycling education and uh, you know what it means to have contaminated re- contaminated recycling as you know landfills are and this is this is a quote out of there that landfills are the third largest emitter of methane um out there right so all the crap that we're putting in there is just so ridiculous and the fact that we live in a society where it's cheaper to use virgin plastics then recycled plastic is just like the scariest thing that I could ever imagine. So that's what I that's what I really hope to be able to focus more attention on in in 2020. And I really want to find new ways of kind of telling that that story in a way that actually fills that education gap, right? Yeah, for sure. How do how do we do this? So totally, totally, and yeah, I know. Like Greg, we've talked about this a, a few times, but I mean, I, I, I think you know, I, I, I think it, I think we need to differentiate between plastic recycling and, and other types of recycling, um, because I think I think plastic recycling is dead, um, and but h- however, like, I, 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 that that's that's maybe not accurate. Like, I, I don't think plastic recycling was ever alive. Right. Because right, like if we're yeah. I, I, I'm pretty sure I have these statistics correct um, in in 2015, I believe approximately nine percent of all plastic that was con- single use plastic that was consumed um, in the U.S. was recycled. Um, the estimate the, the the I mean, best estimates for like this year, which is like the first full year after you know, China and, you know, uh, all these other countries in Southwest Asia that were largely like accepting are uh, used, you know, are thrown away single use plastic and, and recycling it. Um, it's the first full year that they, you know, since they rejected that uh, or stopped taking that plastic. Um, I mean, the projections I've seen are like around two to three uh, percent in, in 2019 of all single use plastic. That's right, so it was always a terrible statistic. So it's like, yeah, it was, it's and like, now it's just gotten that much exactly. worse. Exactly, and and I mean, the, the, there's so many problems with plastic recycling. Like, there's so many different types of plastic, and you know, it's just right. like plastic. You know, like you know, the, the the whole idea that if you take a piece of single use plastic and you put it in the recycle bin and you think that it's going to get recycled, like that's never been a reality. It's getting thrown away, right? You and know. and see, I think that that's part of that conversation. So it, in terms of um, a recycling education, the fact that that is still such a popular myth that this plastic fork is going to get recycled um, is is part of that that conversation. Mm-hmm. Like, why do we believe that? Is right. it just wishful thinking? Right. And then that's all really counteracted by one true outcome. The one true. Uh, way to to offset all of this is to just eliminate that sort of uh, consumption in the first place, and whether or not we're heading toward there, toward this destination, is is a completely different conversation. And uh, in fact, for most people, I would imagine the the idea of giving up some of those day to day essentials, some of those day to day quote end quote essentials, those day to day things that you've gotten so used to having, 
um, you know, buying new shoes as opposed to repairing the old ones, this kind of uh, uh, depression mentality that I'll never have my kids or my grandkids kind of have that live that kind of life. I'll give them anything they want. And is, is there an outcome for that? Especially around this time of year where we just buy whatever we can uh, just to to um, have a little bit of temporary happiness. Yeah, absolutely, man. And, you know, I would I would bring it to, to you know, to again, try to like bring this full circle to the sort of central theme of this episode, which is funding. Um, you know, I, I would argue like like the reason like is I mean, is it theoretically possible to like recycle plastic? Yes, of course. Nine percent of plastic was being recycled, you know, um, five years ago. Um, it's a tiny percentage, but like it is theoretically possible to do it, right? The larger question is why is it that in the United States, like we never built a single facility for recycling plastic? Like, why is it that we decided as a nation that the best way to deal with our plastic waste was to ship it to the other side of the planet and have other people recycle it there so that they could recycle it into new products and then ship those products back to the other side of the world, back to us, right? And so, I mean, this is all... never even handle it on a state-by-state basis. We don't even do that. It's 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 It's... literally a county-by-county, township-by-township basis. Totally. So this all comes back to funding, right, in my opinion. It comes back to, like, you know, the the people that we decide to elect into political office and then how they decide to spend our taxpayer dollars, right? And, you know, in in my opinion, like, you know, obviously I don't like have specific information about like certain politicians that like made concrete decisions at like whatever point in time. But like, why is it that, you know, plastic recycling was always something that was dealt with in China and that we shipped all our quote-unquote recyclable plastic like to China in order to get that process done like probably because there are all these moneyed interests that get paid at each step along that process you know what I mean like that's that's exactly the point though mm -hmm. like to, to mine too which is which is that why why is recycling being done simply because there was why was it ever being done because there was a financial incentive that is the most short-sighted thing that I've ever heard of for something that spends however many tens of thousands of years in a hole in the ground. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So put put a put a price on that. What is that real estate worth if it's only, you know, uh if a if a plastic fork takes up one one hundredth of a square foot, what is that one hundred one one hundredth of a square foot worth over fifty thousand years? Well, and then we're not, you know, we're also not talking about the fact that the plastic comes from the petrochemical industry, you Absolutely. know, so. Right. The whole reason we have plastic right. is like, you know. It was originally in the ground. You need in the, this. Yeah, it was, Here it is. It was originally in the ground in the form of petroleum, right? Oil. Yeah, and then, right. and then it was sold back to us, you know, as humans, as a convenience, you know, as something that was disposable, quote unquote. Um, right. You know, and we have just kind of acquiesced, you know, to that. And but it's the it's the biggest 
like sham, you know, ever. And then now here right. we are in this conundrum of what do we do with all of this plastic that we created? What do we do without it? And back to our oceans, you know, about this is also linking back to our oceans. It's filling up our oceans. We have the huge Pacific garbage patch, you know, um, and all these birds and sea life of all kinds, you know, dying because their bellies are filled with plastic and they they starve to death because their bellies are filled with plastic, right? So, you know, that we've externalized the cost, you know, of this this plastic waste, you know, we've externalized the cost. We just think like we throw it away and and then it disappears from, you know, our sight, out of sight, out of mind. And yet, you know, Absolutely. there's so much else that is happening down that chain you know, um, that we don't know anything about. So yeah, it's killing whales. It's to bring this full circle. It's killing whales who are sequestering however many tons of carbon, each individual, right? Like sequestering all these tons of carbon emissions every single year. Right. It's like, we're, uh, we're killing this incredibly valuable resource. Yeah. Then we can't actually fund a necropsy because we're too busy spending that money on oil subsidies. Right. Yeah, we just need to keep it in the ground. We need to keep it in the ground. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah. So, yeah, there's just a ton of different topics that you can probably tell that we really want to cover. It's obvious that all of us are really passionate about the things that we're, we get into. And um, obviously, I don't know, I, I, I feel this way just talking to you guys today, just there's so much interest in trying to find ways to creatively tell these stories. And there's clearly importance and an and insane amount of uh, significance and consequence to these stories that in a lot of ways are just kind of disappearing past the human eye. Mm-hmm. And we're kind of watching so many, we're, we're, we're watching the demise of a lot of really important parts of not just what makes us humans, but what makes this planet a planet. And um, if I, I guess if I could say anything in closing, God, Merry Christmas, everybody. Um, <laughs> if I could say anything in closing, it's that it's not, it's not all for naught, right? So us talking about these things, bringing these topics up to the table and having ways that we can produce these episodes it's possible because of listenership. It's possible. It's possible because of donations, um, and and being able to contribute to something like the Patreon campaign is a terrific, terrific way to help fight that good fight. And if you can help us with that, we're going to be doing the best we can to do what we can on our end. That's not about fair. Yeah, and I would love to do this again. This is really fun. This was awesome. And I think maybe if. You know, we get some some feedback from listeners. If you enjoyed this style, um, maybe we could throw this in as like a mini episode once a month or something like that. I think that'd be cool moving forward into 2020. Agreed. 100%. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So for all the listeners of Eyes on Conservation, um, on behalf of Kristen Tiesch, Matthew Podolsky, Serena Simons, I'm Gregory Haddock. Thank you so much for tuning in and being a part of this adventure with us. Wouldn't be possible without you. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas on such a sad note. <laughs> Have yourself a green Christmas. I like that. Have a green Christmas. I love that. That, that means something totally different in Colorado. So watch out where you go. <laughs> <laughs>